You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome back for the fourth of six lectures on human nature. And we're going to begin today with the question of human knowledge, the topic of how we know what we know. And from that, we will return to a little more refined discussion of the relationship between soul and body, and finally end with a longer treatment of the question of human freedom. And we saw at the end of the last lecture, where we were once again comparing Aristotle with Descartes, that Descartes talks about a way of circumventing direct orientation to the sensible world and going instead, rather directly, to the intelligible. But first of all, to the nature of the human intellect, and then as Descartes moves further into his meditations to God, and then he comes back to the world. Now, Aquinas and Aristotle, of course, did not have the privilege of being able to read Descartes and respond to him, since he lived well after their deaths. But Aquinas has some sort of version of this, of a kind of incipient Cartesian view, at least on this issue of whether we can go directly to intelligible things and sort of circumvent or go around the sensible order. And he identifies this as a form of Platonism. And to be somewhat careful historically here, because of course Aquinas had very little access to the complete dialogues of Plato, and Plato's own position especially given that his teachings are couched in the dialogue form, wherein it's difficult to know finally what to attribute to whom and where the position finally ends up. So we have to be careful on this not to say that what Aquinas has here is a well-worked-out historical account or literary account of what Plato was up to. But for the sake of argument, we will simply take what Aquinas calls Platonism and consider the position and consider what Aquinas thinks is wrong with it, since something like this position has exercised a rather strong pull on philosophers from the time of Plato through Descartes on into the modern and contemporary era. And what does Aquinas mean by Platonism? Well, what he identifies as the fundamental Platonic view on human knowledge is that there is no difference between the mode of knowing and the mode of being of the things known. Now, what does this mean? Well, when Aquinas comes to spell this out in some detail, he actually does place Plato in an historical context. And he places his position as the second major position on knowledge after that of what he calls the early natural philosophers. You may recall that when we were discussing Aristotle's natural philosophy, we talked about the early natural philosophers who said that nature was simply the material constituent or substratum of things, and it didn't have anything to do with form. Well, if you follow that claim out and apply it to the issue of human knowledge, then human knowledge is either impossible or it's simply a matter of treating the intellect as if it were itself material. Well, what do I mean by these two options? Well, the first option is to say with the early natural philosophers that all that exists is material. That's all there is. And since material things are in a constant state of flux, as Heraclitus says, all things are flowing. Since that's the case, we can never really have any certain knowledge of things. Now, other early natural philosophers did try to talk about a kind of physical correspondence between the soul 
or the mind of human beings and things. And so they spoke not only of things being made up of basic stuff like air or fire or water, but also at times of the soul or the intellectual part of human beings, the knowing part as being made up of fire or air, so that there would be this antecedent likeness between the nature of the human mind and things in the world. And this would be a sort of direct physical correspondence. In either case, we don't really arrive at knowledge as something wholly distinct from sensation. In the first case, we really can't have knowledge because the view is that natural things are in such a state of flux that we can never know anything with certainty. Things are always changing so that if we were to attribute anything to a particular substance at one point in time, over time that would change and hence the knowledge would be altered and lost. On the second view, we really don't have anything like a distinctively intellectual view of human knowledge because it's simply equated to a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence of a physical body with the physical objects. Now, what Plato saw is that there is a fundamental difference between sensation and knowledge. Plato noticed that knowledge, if it is to be certain and necessary, is of the universal, it's of what is immaterial, and what is immobile. On this view, Aquinas takes Plato to have made a large advance beyond the early natural philosophers, recognizing the distinctiveness of knowledge versus sensation. Universality, immateriality, immobility. The problem that Plato then confronted, however, is that sensible things are not universal but singular. They're not immaterial but material. They're not immobile but mobile. And hence there is this gap between the requirements of knowledge, the content and form of knowledge, and the natures of sensible things existing in the world. So what did Plato do? Well, what Plato said is that, in fact, the objects of knowledge are not the sensible things existing in the world, but rather he posits the separate order of ideas in which sensible things participate and which they are reflections of and so forth. But the mind in knowing, according to Plato, once it's freed from its slavery to the senses, it has a rather direct access to ideas which are independent of all sensible things and which are themselves universal, immaterial, and immobile. And this is the way that Plato saved the certainty and veracity of knowledge. Now, notice that on the view I've just described, universality, immobility, immateriality applies to both the mind's knowing for Plato and for the things that it knows, because it isn't primarily knowing sensible, material, mobile things. Right? It's knowing the ideas. So that's how this is expressed rather technically here. Right? The mode of knowing and the mode of being of the things known, those are the same. The mode of knowing, universal, immaterial, immobile, Plato posits ideas which are the objects of knowledge, that's the mode of being of the things known. They too are immobile, immaterial, and universal. Now, while Aquinas wants to credit Plato with having made an advance upon the early natural philosophers, he thinks that this is fallacious. That there is, in fact, a modal difference between the things that are known as they exist outside the mind and the mode of knowing in the mind. So on Plato's view, and this is another objection that Aquinas has to it, on Plato's view, there really wouldn't be knowledge of sensible things, right? Because what we know are these separate ideas. And the sensible world is sort of set aside as unworthy of knowledge, it seems in some places, but more fundamentally as incapable of being known because it's mutable, singular, and mobile. What Aquinas wants to say, following Aristotle on this, 
is he wants to bring forth this rival principle that whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. If we take sensation for the moment, the mode of the reception of sensation in the sensitive power is singular, material, and mobile. Sense apprehends singular material things directly. Sensation, in a way, receives what it gets from the external world, basically the same mode as those things have being in the world. The intellect is quite different, however, because the intellect receives things, its knowledge of sensible, singular, material, changeable beings, receives that knowledge such that it has universal, immaterial, immobile knowledge, certain knowledge, universal knowledge of these things. So what is the fundamental thing then, according to Aquinas, that Plato missed? And I think you can put it this way. It's that the intellect is both passive or receptive and active with respect to the objects of knowledge. Now, it is certainly passive, right? We've seen over and over again, we've said thus far, that the intellect itself is a potency and it's only made actual by being affected by objects, by things that it knows. So that it is certainly a passive power. It doesn't have within itself the capacity to create knowledge, as it were, ex nihilo, without adverting to the external world. So the intellect is certainly receptive. And Plato had that view of the intellect as receptive, as sort of receiving these ideas from external forms. Now, according to Aristotle and to Aquinas, what Plato seems to have missed is the active ingredient, the active capacity of the intellect. Now, there's nothing spooky or mysterious going on here either. What's going on here can be understood simply in terms of any ordinary act of knowing. Take, for example, the act of encountering from a distance something moving, and you say, well, that's a body. And then you say, well, it's an animal if you're really far away. And then you get up closer to it, and you can start to identify it as a horse rather than a moose let's say. And then you identify it when you get even closer as the horse that escaped from your friend's farm and you're going to help return the horse to him. So this movement from a kind of vague general knowledge of some object as perhaps a living thing and then as a horse and then as this particular horse, right? that movement presupposes the active participation of the intellect, engaging the experience, probing it. Sometimes this means simply walking more closely, right? getting a better view. Other times it means that more complex sorts of investigations have got to be undertaken. But whatever needs to be undertaken to move from this initial vague apprehension of what something is to a more precise and determinate knowledge of what the thing is, that is done by the intellect acting on that experience, probing it, questioning it, reformulating its views, and then coming to test those things out sometimes through scientific investigations if the matter is fairly technical and hidden, other times simply through reflection with others about what do we know about this and how could we come to know it better. It's that aspect of the intellect, its active ingredient, its active propensity that is revealed in this kind of persistent questioning that revises views and comes to ever more determinate and adequate accounts of things. That view is what Aristotle and Aquinas take Plato to have missed as active on sensible things, right? It's not by removing oneself from the sensible world that one gains a greater clarity about the natures of things. It's in fact the reverse. It's by immersing oneself in the subject matter to be studied, the sensible objects, whatever they are that we're trying to come to know, that we actually come 
to a more mature and adequate understanding of things. So once again, the notion of the mind as always already actively engaging things and attempting to come to know them better, to refine that initial vague knowledge, that's the fundamental view of the picture of the intellect in the world that we get from Aristotle and Aquinas. Now, Aristotle and Aquinas both will talk about a certain power that enables human beings to engage in this activity of actively questioning experience, and they call it the agent intellect, or the active intellect. This is what Plato didn't have, according to Aquinas. And the active intellect is evident, its capacity is evident, in this active engagement with the world, this persistent sort of questioning. The technical term that Aquinas will give to the primary activity of the agent intellect is abstraction. That is to say, the agent intellect in its active engagement with the world, when it comes to see to an adequate understanding of what things are, what something is, it abstracts a universal from a set of singulars. So this capacity to move from the singular, material, mobile, changeable thing to a universal knowledge of those things. This is carried out, this capacity is carried out by the agent intellect, by abstracting the universals from the particulars. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this notion of abstraction and be a little bit more precise about what we do and do not mean by this. I mean, one thing we need to be careful about here in considering any of these properly intellectual operations is that we not confuse them with material operation. In the last lecture, we talked in some detail about the differences between sensation and understanding. And sensation is always a power operative in a corporeal organ, whereas understanding is not. And one of the dangers, if we think in too material or physical a manner about abstraction, is that we might think of it as the intellect somehow simply physically sort of plucking something out from a material thing or set of sensible singulars, just kind of plucking it out physically, like some sort of crane or something that goes in and plucks something out. And we call that the universal or the intelligible species, technically. Now, that's not what abstraction means. In fact, to put it very simply, abstraction, according to Aquinas, is simply the ability of the mind to consider some features of a thing while disregarding others. And abstraction properly, that is, that operation of abstraction that arrives at the universal, is a consideration of what's essential to a certain substance while disregarding its accidental features. Now, notice that this is, in a way, a response to the difficulty that those early natural philosophers and Plato both had with whether there could at all be knowledge of sensible things. Right? Because it is certainly the case that sensible things are singular, material, changeable. But what Aquinas wants to insist upon is that sensible things nonetheless behave in certain habitually intelligible ways, that there is a kind of necessity even in this changeability. There's a sort of unity and in intelligibility, something that can be known reliably. And notice that that can be apprehended precisely because the intellect can, in its engagement with sensible things, the intellect can distinguish over time what's essential to this thing and what's merely accidental. Let me give a couple of examples. When Aquinas talks about the sort of knowledge appropriate to natural philosophy, or sometimes called physics, he says that when we define things in natural philosophy, we don't simply talk 
about the form of the thing. Right? We talked about form and matter at length in previous lectures. We don't simply talk about the form of the thing because all natural things are composites of form and matter. And so we have to include matter. But matter seems to bring us back into this realm of the singular, the changeable, the accidental. Well, Aquinas wants to make a distinction here. Different kinds of matter would or would not enter into the definition of things in natural philosophy. So he distinguishes between signate matter and common matter. Now, signate matter, technically from the Latin, is something that I can point to. So the signate matter of me standing here is that I happen to be standing here at this moment in time. I happen to be dressed in a certain way. I happen to be a certain height. My eyes happen to be a certain color. My skin happens to be a certain color, etc. Those are all the particular accidental material features that go into making me be here at this time and place in the precise way that I am here at this time and place. Now, Aquinas says that when we make definitions in natural philosophy and come to understand natural substances, we don't include signate matter. Right? We can't include it because these definitions are supposed to be common to many members of the same species. So if I come to define human nature, I don't include a certain height, a certain color of skin, a certain eye color, being in a certain place and time, etc. All those things are signate matter. They are, in a way, accidental to being human. Right? Necessary for there to be any particular human being, that he or she be a certain height, have a certain color of skin, etc. But those things don't enter into the definition of what it means to be human. Right? What is common to every member of the species. Right? Because a certain set of particular signate matter individuating conditions excludes others. So if I'm here at this place in time, I can't be anywhere else at this place in time. So you don't want to include things like that in a definition. We don't, however, want to move completely away from the material world right? and simply talk about ideal essences or forms in the way Plato wants to in some passages. So what Aquinas says is, since the form always has a proper matter, we talk about the common matter of the thing. And here's an example of this. Certainly we need to bring into a definition of human nature, what it means to be human, the body. Right? Because the intellectual soul is the form of the body. So we have to bring in the body. And we have to bring in, then, at least implicitly, the notion of flesh and bones for the human body. But we don't bring in to the definition this flesh and these bones right here, this flesh and these bones. Right? Not the particular signate, the things that I can point to, this flesh, these bones. What we bring in is more generally flesh and bones. That it's a body which will be composed of flesh and bones. So this common matter, not the particular, this flesh, this bone, but the common matter that there should be in this body of a human being, flesh and bones, and similarly for other animals. So that notion of abstracting from the particular accidental individuating conditions, this flesh, these bones, that I happen to be here and now at this time and place, etc., those things don't enter into a definition. What enters in is this common matter. So in this, Aquinas finds a way around the difficulty that Plato and the early natural philosophers had of assigning any sort of knowledge to sensible things, to the human mind's encounter with sensible things. This enables us to say, provided we have come to an adequate understanding of whatever substances we're talking about, this enables us to include common matter without getting bogged down in the signate individuating matter of things. And so that is the capacity of abstraction, to abstract from the individuating conditions and to consider separately what is common to all of the natures of these things.
Now, having given that brief account of the abstraction, which is performed by the agent intellect, we need to move on from that to consider a little bit more carefully the notion of how it is that we come to know. Especially we need to consider the relationship between abstraction and what Aristotle and Aquinas call the phantasm. For it is, as they put it technically, from the phantasm that we abstract the intelligible species, the universal. Phantasm, abstraction, universal, called the intelligible species. Okay, now, one immediate objection to this view of abstraction is that, and it's the reason why Plato, had he heard it, might even have resisted it, even if he had seen the view spelled out, which can be put this way. Isn't falsity entailed by this claim that our knowledge is of universals and yet we seem to be saying that we know sensible singulars, right? The disparity between our knowledge, which is universal, necessary, immaterial, and what we claim it is of as a follower of Aquinas, namely sensible, singular, material things, there seems to be a kind of falsity involved in this. And Aquinas responds to that rather quickly by saying that there is no falsity in this because the intellect does not attribute its mode of knowing to the being of the things, right? That there is a fundamental difference between the mode of knowing and the being of things. All right, notice that this is a difference in the mode. It's not a difference in the content. It's a universal knowledge of the natures of sensible things, the natures that these sensible things share in common. So the content is not different between the knowing and the thing known, but the mode is different. The mode is universal, immaterial, etc., while the mode of being of things is singular and material and so forth. So the quick response there is in accord with this principle I mentioned earlier, that whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. And the mode of the receiver for intellectual beings is universality, immateriality, etc. Now the question is, what is the relationship between the phantasm and abstraction and the universal that results from abstraction. Let's back up for a moment and consider phantasm. It could simply be translated as image in our language. That might be an easier way to translate it. But it is what results from, as Aquinas and Aristotle put it, an encounter with a set of things from which arises memories of these things and then an experience of them as related in certain ways, causally related in certain ways. And from that experience, the mind operating on these sensible image is able to abstract the universal nature. Now Aquinas will even talk about at the level of sensation, talks about what he calls the cogitative power. And there being even at this level of the sensation a kind of collating or comparison of images so that we come gradually to sort out through questioning our experience and making better and better images, we come to sort out what's essential from what's accidental. In fact, as we all know from either having taught or having been students, the best way to learn and the best way to teach somebody is to find an appropriate example. Right? And an appropriate example is a phantasm that's been prepared by someone who understands the material. Right? It's an image in which you suddenly see, aha, I get the point. Right? I understand what the essence of the matter is here and I can distinguish it from what's accidental to whatever it is that we're discussing. You could also think of the phantasm as a kind of appropriate example of the thing to be learned. And it's through focusing upon that example and coming to penetrate what it's about that I actually have an insight and understand. And when I have that insight and understand, my understanding is no longer limited to this particular example, but I can apply it to any instance that may be appropriate. 
So, I mean, the examples that Aristotle and Aquinas use on this have to do often with mathematics, and especially with geometry. So that if I draw a diagram of a right-angled triangle and perform as Euclid does in Proposition 47 of Book 1 of his Elements, I perform the proof for the Pythagorean theorem. That particular example that I've drawn on the board is here at a particular place in time. The triangle is a certain color. The sides have a certain length and so forth. All of that is really irrelevant. This is but an example, and an appropriate one once I do the proof, that enables me to see that wherever I have these given conditions of a right-angled triangle, that there will be a certain relationship of the figures drawn on the sides to one another in the Pythagorean theorem. So that once I have that insight, the knowledge is no longer merely of this particular example, but I can say that wherever I have these conditions, I will know that this is true, essentially, of this thing. And the same would be true in natural philosophy, for instance, if I'm trying to define the nature of a certain kind of animal or even a certain kind of plant or the nature of human beings. So that once I get the phantasm properly prepared, an illustrative example, and once I have an insight into that, the mind operating on it says, Eureka, right? I see it. I found it. Then the intellect is no longer limited to that precise example, but can apply that knowledge to any number of appropriate examples. Now, what then is the role of the phantasm once we have come to know things? That is, once we've had that initial insight. Aquinas asks at one point whether the intellect, once having come to know something, having abstracted an intelligible species from the phantasm, needs to turn to the phantasm for every subsequent act of knowing. It might seem that, well, we need the example, the phantasm, the image, for that first act of knowing, and then we could simply dispense with it. In this way, sense would seem to be, and the phantasm would seem to be, merely a point of departure for knowledge that could then later be discarded, and we could simply rely on the intellect. Aquinas denies this. Rather forcefully, he denies this. And what he says about this, his criticism of it, is that all acts of knowledge require our insight or turning to the phantasm. He gives a number of arguments for this. One argument is that we know from experience, if not of ourselves, than that of others, that knowledge can be damaged if an organ, an appropriate organ of sight or hearing or whatever, has been damaged. And so this close connection between the bodily organ and our knowledge is insisted upon by Aquinas. Another thing is that he says, well, even when we come to re-know things, right, to actualize the knowledge already possessed once again, even when we do that, examples assist us. We retain a clearer or recover a clearer picture or notion of what it is that we're knowing when we think of an image. And, and I think you can try this out for yourself and try to think about something that you know and see if your thinking isn't always accompanied by some vague image. Now an awful lot of that is not going to be relevant to the knowledge. Right? So that if you start to imagine a right-angled triangle, right, it might be a certain color, it might fade in and out in your imagination in the way it doesn't on the board if you're simply looking at it. And the intellect simply edits out all that's accidental and simply sees in the image, apprehends in the image, what is necessary about the thing. So that this, once again, is a kind of proof that the intellect is actually abstracting, disregarding the accidental features and apprehending the universal nature. But it always does it in the phantasm. Aquinas likes to quote this statement from Aristotle that the intellect abstracts from and understands in the phantasm. So it is both abstracting from and understanding in the phantasm the universal that it understands, the universal nature of things. The final reason that Aquinas gives about this 
has to do with truth. And the need with respect to truth to advert to the phantasm has to do with the following, that the universal knowledge that we have of things is always an apprehension of the universal natures of sensible things. This is the key here, the of. We're always apprehending not some separately existing universal, not some world of ideas that's separate from the sensible world. We're always apprehending the universal natures of sensible things. So that in order for our knowledge to correspond to what's out there, we need in our act of knowing, in saying this is such and such, we need in that act of knowing to advert to the image, which is an image of the things existing in the sensible world. So that this indicates this correspondence of the mind to things, this identity of the intellect with sensible things. It's always the universal nature of sensible things. And so the intellect must advert to these sensible things in every act of knowing, not just as a kind of pedagogical tool, but also for the sake of truth, that we may judge in the concrete that what we know is the nature of this sensible thing. And notice that in this act for Aquinas, we have a marvelous unity here of the composition of the human person, of human beings, right? Of the intellectual and the sensitive, the intellectual soul and the body. How is that? Well, in this act of knowing that we know the universal natures of sensible singular things, the intellect at once knows that it senses The intellect does not properly know sensible things, but universals. But the intellect, as Aquinas puts it, can extend to sense by a kind of reflection. And so the intellect knows what it senses and senses what it knows. So that this marvelous unity of the composite comes out in this act of judging that this sensible singular is of a nature of a certain sort. So that the universal is always of a concretely existing sensible singular thing. And in that, we see that the absolute wedding and union of sensation and knowledge, not their confusion, but their unity, their cooperation, and their intimate relationship to one another, that we're knowing something that's universal, but we're always knowing it of sensible singulars. And so both with respect to the thing, which presents itself always as a singular and as having some sort of universal formality, and with respect to our knowing, which is our experience of these things, which is both a sensing of the singular and a knowing of the universal. On that side of the thing, Aristotle, this is fairly technical language in Greek, the todeti that he uses, but he speaks of singulars as being always a this such. Now, the this indicates the singularity, the particularity of every concretely existing thing, right? There are no concretely existing universals, just concretely existing thises, singulars. But every singular, insofar as it's intelligible, reveals it, manifests itself to us, a kind of universal formality. So I understand this plant as an instance of a certain kind of flower. That is, if it were merely particularity and singularity that were manifest in individual things, I could have no knowledge of them. There is no such thing for Aristotle and Aquinas as a bare singular. There's always a singular as a bearer of an intelligible, a universal nature, something that goes beyond mere singularity. That is, after all, how we name things, right? This is a desk, this particular individually existing thing, but it's also the bearer of a kind of nature that is shared in by many desks, right? So it's a this and a such.
right? It's this object right here before me. It's a desk, which is a such, something that can be applied to many individuals of the same kind. So that in our very experience of singular things in the world, they always reveal themselves to us under this sort of formality of universality. How it is that we understand them has to do with their suchness, with what they are that rises above mere singularity, and yet is manifest in their very singularity. So this very important relationship for Aristotle and Aquinas between our universal immaterial knowledge and the singular sensible things that we are knowing can't be stressed too much. One difficulty as we move more deeply into this question of human knowledge has to do with the view of what I've been calling the intelligible species and what we might call the problem of the intelligible species. Why is this a problem? Well, Aquinas has some notion that this could become a problem when he asks at one point in the sections on human knowledge in the Summa Theologiae, he asks whether the intelligible species is what the mind understands or that by which it understands. So we seem to have two options, whether it is what, which would mean it's the object of knowledge, or whether it's that by which the intellect understands things. Notice that the intelligible species is that which is received into the intellect when it abstracts the universal from the singulars. Now, if we go this route and we say that the intelligible species is the object of knowledge, we're already on our way to that modern problematic of being trapped in our minds and trying to get out to the external world. Right? Because what we have done is to say that what I know primarily are ideas. Right? So that ideas would be the first and primary object of knowledge. And then the job would be to move from those ideas out to the external world. Now, Descartes and Locke talk this way about our knowledge. That what we are sure of is the ideas. We're sure of the ideas that are directly present to the mind. And the difficulty is not in knowing what these ideas are, at least insofar as they have a kind of status merely in the mind, but whether these ideas correspond to anything in the external world. So the difficulty consists in getting, once again, from a mind over here with its own ideas to a world over there. And Descartes and Locke and others sometimes speak of our comparing this idea that we have in our mind to things. But notice that we can very quickly get into a kind of infinite regress, as Hume noted rather astutely. We can very quickly get into an infinite regress, which will never get us out of ideas. For if this first idea we have is going to be compared to things, it seems that our experience of that thing just as it was with the first idea, is going to be mediated by a subsequent idea. Right? That is, if the mind always and only directly knows ideas, then what we have is seemingly an infinite regress of ideas. We start out with an idea, and we want to compare it to the thing. But the problem is that the thing seems only to be known by means of an idea. Right? That that's what we know first. So any reception of this knowledge of this thing is itself going to be an idea. And so then we have to ask, well, does that idea correspond to the thing? But of course, each time we move and attempt to encounter the thing directly, what we encounter is another idea. So we simply get this sort of infinite regress of the question of whether ideas correspond to one another, and we can never get out into the world. So we do appear to be trapped by this view in our own minds and unable to know anything about the external world. So after Locke and Descartes, 
Hume comes along, and Hume known as a skeptic, and there's good reason, given the framework within which he's working, for his skepticism. Right? If we primarily and basically know ideas and from them have to infer things, it seems that there's never any way that we can be sure that ideas correspond to what's out there. So Hume adopts a kind of skepticism about the relationship between his ideas and external things. There's no way we can get out there to really verify what these things are, since after all, every encounter with a thing has got to be mediated by an idea, and this goes on endlessly. There's no way out of it. Now, Aquinas, as I noted just briefly, denies this view that what we know are primarily our ideas. He asserts that what we know are the natures of sensible things. Right? What we primarily know is the external world, the natures of things in the external world. Then he asserts that it's not the what, the species is not the what, it's the that by which I come to understand the external world. Now many commentators, understanding what Aquinas wants to do here, have nonetheless said that he anticipates or contributes to this problem that arises in Descartes and Locke of knowing primarily our ideas and being trapped thereby in our own minds by using this language of by which. Because it does seem that in using that language that what we're talking about is the idea as means or instrument. And that seems, in spite of Aquinas's protestations to the contrary, it seems to force us back into this view that we know ideas and by means of them we know things. Is this correct? Does Aquinas anticipate this at all? Well, I think he does. And we have to be a little clearer about what we mean by the by which. We have to set that in the larger context, which is that when Aquinas says that what we primarily know are the sensible natures of external things, the sensible natures of things existing in the external world, he says that it's only secondarily that we apprehend at all the species. What does he mean by that? Well, this is the sort of concomitant knowledge that I spoke of a few lectures ago. That is, when I am in the process or activity of coming to know something and finally do come to know it, I can have and often do have at that time a concomitant awareness not just that I know this thing or not just an awareness of the thing, but a concomitant awareness that I know the thing. Right? So I know that I know. I don't simply know the thing, but I have an awareness that I know that I know. I'm aware of my own knowing. And that, in a way, is the intellect's self-possession. Right? It's taking itself, its knowledge in its hand and saying, I know this in the very act of knowing the thing. It's a kind of concomitant awareness that Aquinas will talk about, not a completely separate act of knowing, but a concomitant awareness. And in that, what Aquinas will sometimes say is that I apprehend the identity of my knowing and the thing known. So for Aquinas, since the species is only known indirectly, secondarily, obliquely, and always presupposes that I am already knowing external things, it could never be said to be the instrumental means by which I come to know other things. Indeed, it's the other way around in a way, that the means by which I come to know the species is my direct knowledge of the external thing. Right? It's only that knowledge that activates the intellect, that brings it from being potential to actual in knowing. And once it is actual, it can be known as a knower, it can know that I know. So this by which is not intended by Aquinas to be an instrumental means that gets us out of our minds to the external world. Indeed, the knowledge of the species is secondary and oblique and dependent on already knowing external things. 
But one last point of clarification on this, and this is an absolutely crucial point because it runs all the way up into contemporary philosophy of language and philosophy of mind. And most writers who want to give up on theories of knowledge, Rorty and others have a lot of cachet still to this day, want to give up on knowledge, think that the whole of the history of Western philosophy has been plagued by this problem of starting with ideas in the mind and moving out to the external world. And Aquinas' statements notwithstanding, what they want to say is that he, in fact, is complicit in this problematic. And so many people have wanted simply to demolish epistemology or theory of knowledge and say, we ought to just get rid of it because it's fundamentally wedded to this view that we're caught in our minds and the problem is to try and get out. And what we've seen thus far from Aquinas is that that's not the case. One last way to put this, to clarify this, is what's called the problem of the third thing. We have two things. We have an intellect, we have a sensible object. The problem of the third thing, and, and this is why some people who don't want to do away with theories of knowing but want to do away with the notion of the concept or the species or the idea altogether, want to say, well, where is the concept? What we seem to do by even introducing the language of concept, species, idea, is to introduce rather awkwardly and unhelpfully a third thing between the intellect and the sensible object. Why not just talk about knowledge as intellect knowing sensible objects? Why talk about concepts, species, ideas at all? So that on this view, Aquinas might not be guilty of falling into this view that we start with our mind and then have to work out to the world, but his very language seems to invite that as the next step an individual's exploration of knowledge. So what is the concept then? Well, it is certainly not for Aquinas a third thing that is interposed between the mind and the sensible object. In fact, we could talk about the concept or the species as simply the activity of the intellect being informed by the external thing. So this is simply shorthand for a way of talking about the fact that the sensible object, the nature of the sensible object, has informed the intellect. Notice that there's an interesting technical point here. If you take the Latin term for concept, a certain form of that, conceptum, doesn't mean a concept as a separate entity, right, which Aquinas and Aristotle never talk about. But conceptum means literally the thing conceived. So when we talk about the concepts, we can talk about the intellect and the sensible object the conceptum is just a way of talking about that interaction out of which arises knowledge. It's saying that these two are one. The concept is their identity in act. The thing conceived by the intellect. That's not some third thing in addition to the mind and the sensible object. That's a way of talking about how the intellect is informed by, actualized by, the thing. And that takes us to perhaps the most difficult of the issues surrounding human knowledge, this problem of the species, at least the most difficult problem that Aquinas seems to have bestowed upon his commentators and the problematic that he and others bestowed upon early modern philosophy. But I think we can see in advance here that Aquinas gives us a way around this difficulty, that we don't need to be trapped in our mind, we don't need to posit some third independently existing thing which is sort of interposed between the intellect and the external world. We can talk about the concept as simply the thing conceived, the way in which the nature of the sensible object informs the intellect, the way in which the intellect grasps the object, just as the hand, when it grasps something, that grasping is not some 
third thing interposed between the hand and the thing. It is simply the hands grasping, the being formed by, the taking the shape of possessing the thing. So the grasping is not some third thing between the hand and what is grasped. It's simply talking about the way in which the hand has taken hold of the thing. Same thing with the intellect. And so for this lecture, we will stop there, and then we will turn to some of the interesting questions that are raised about soul and body by Aquinas' account of human knowledge. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.